Top of the news this evening is speculation concerning the real facts behind the Department of Health announcement about a radioactive spill supposed to have occurred yesterday at the state nuclear plant. You will die only to live again in a younger body. Then you can tell me if the operation was a success. I could easily kill you now. But I'm determined to have your brain. You're listening to the Really Awful Movies Podcast, a celebration of genre cinema. Hi, my name is Chris, and along with Jeff, we talk about movies that aren't really awful at all. Horror, action, kung fu, musicals, post-apocalyptic, women in prison films, and much, much more. Is he all right? Something is scaring Room is closing in on me. You've got to make it stop. The walls. The walls. The walls. The walls. The walls. From her downtown Toronto headquarters, here's episode 248, William Castle's The Tingler. So FDR said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, and when it comes to our podcasts, we have two fears. Uh, One is that we might not be able to coherently discuss a particular subject matter or film because it's just so highly revered that we don't feel we can do it justice. And the second one, the more sinister one, is recorder failure. So last week, on that note, on that we fucked up the recording for this film, The Tingler, and we are endeavoring to give it another shot. And I'm I'm just like aghast right now because I'm just, since you're doing this, I'm going to say it right now. Just a second ago, I said, Chris, would you like to reference the fact that this is a retake? And you said. No, we, we can't do that because we're professional broadcasters. <laughs> professional how? We're I was speaking out of the side of my mouth. Uh, and then you just blindsided me with by saying that we fucked up. We fucked up. Mea culpa. We, we recorded an episode for The Tingler. Um, as you said, William Castle, I believe it was released in 58 or was it 59? Because I have no notes. That's the thing. We recorded an episode. I take copious notes. I've discussed this before. I'd probably take too many notes. Then we're done. And... I toss my notes away. This particular incident, somebody, <clears throat> I don't know who, <laughs> forgot to save it or actually saved an episode twice or maybe not. I don't know. We don't know. We don't know. But some yeah. a mistake was made and the episode was lost. So now we are doing the Tingler Take 2 considering the fact that Take 1 was lost to the ages. For all we know, it could have been our best episode ever. But <laughs> frankly, it might be in the cloud. But we, I don't know. That's maybe where my the head cloud is. is such a nebulous. I don't even. I, I yeah. do not trust the cloud. It is nebulous. It's, it's literally nebulous. Yeah. Like where is yeah. where is this cloud? Uh, it's not anywhere <laughs> that would lend itself to us it's so backing funny. up our materials. It's so funny you say this because you're making me go tangential already. Just this week, I had such a panic. My entire career as a college professor is stored on one particular stick, a USB stick, uh, that has all my materials, all my planning from 10 years of teaching. And every so often, I've lost sticks and I've managed to reconstruct them. And last semester, I had a stick that got formatted and I managed to reconstruct it. Now, this was last week, Thursday. 
that morning before I left for work, I was doing something with my stick and a thought popped in my head. It's time for a backup. Because ever since I was in, I keep backing, backing, backing up. <laughs> I never stopped backing up. But I didn't do it. I said, I'll back it up tonight. Well, I taught my class. It was a later class, 3.30, 6.30. I come home. I don't have a lot of time. So I got to be back in school next month for 8.30. Got to make my dinner, whatever. And I notice my stick is gone. And I'm fucking panicking. I don't know what to do. But what I did do, because at the, at the school, we have 24-hour security. I called security. I spoke to a guy who was so official and by the book, it's kind of funny. Um, I said, man, I'm sorry to bother you with this. I know, you know, this is, but can you please go to this classroom, see if you can find the stick? Thankfully, it was there. But it was just hilarious because oftentimes with security guards, you get two types. You get guys that just want to make some money. And you get these guys, I think they want to be cops and they just couldn't make it. So they, and they're, they're hoping to try again one these days. So they're very official, right? And that's the guy I got. Sir, I have located the item. I am now uh, confiscating it uh, from the classroom, <laughs> and I will now be placing it in a secure area. Yeah, slip it into a into a Ziploc bag yes. for me, and uh, don't let your fingerprints yeah. touch it. Tomorrow, when you come, uh, when you arrive in person on campus, you will be providing your. I mean, it's, it's, I'm like, dude, keep my stick. I'm thankful that you have it. I'll get it tomorrow. And the next day, I almost had another panic attack because then these two morons that work in the morning didn't know where the guy last night placed it. So that's tangential. So yeah, so then I was telling uh, some colleagues about this story, and then one of him said, "I don't think our students use sticks anymore. I think it's sticks, all this cloud sticks business is archaic. You know, we're so archaic, and it's true. Everything is in the cloud. But I mean, I don't trust the cloud because, well, the cloud could vanish overnight. But I mean, that's probably not going to happen. But the reality of the matter is, it's just taking your stuff and sending it somewhere and giving it, giving it. That's all we do is we give away stuff." We give away things to Facebook. We give away things to... You're on Instagram. I'm a very active Instagram user, and for all I know, uh, Russian bots have hacked into my personal proclivities, and they, they know my whereabouts, and based on GPS, they know where I've been, and my day-to-day -day moments can be quite easily construed when by anybody. You, when you signed for Instagram, did you read the terms and conditions, or did you just check the box? Oh, I took it to my lawyer and okay. had them uh, go and over it. Yeah, yeah, just a quick uh, yes, I agree, and bam, here we all do that. And what we end up doing is whatever we post, we are giving it to these companies. I believe Facebook owns Instagram, don't they? They do indeed. Yes. And are you saying they don't have our best interests at heart? That's well, Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> I mean, hey, you know, you always come up to me. I got a new idea for a horror movie villain. I mean, a Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg is pretty much a villain. Just you know. Uh, as close as we have to a maybe a James Bond villain, I would say. Than a <laughs> well, Unfriended movie. is as close as you can get to an evil horror film. Uh -huh. That's for sure. That's a bad movie. No, what I keep saying to, is that every time we do that, and I do it too, we're giving these things, all your wonderful photographs, you are now giving to Instagram or Facebook to use as a wish in perpetuity. They own it. Yeah. You own it, but they own it. They have intellectual property rights. You've given it to them. If they want to use it in advertisement, they can. And it's the same with the cloud. Whatever you're saying up there, they can use it. So... We did send our episode to the cloud, and that would have been good because maybe then we wouldn't have lost it. But I guess this is our, our sort of long-winded, tangential way of saying that this episode is sort of being recorded on the fly. Uh, no pun intended. Yeah, good right? Because, yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. Vincent Price, right? He was, he was in the fly. Mm -hmm. We're in the fly as well. And I don't have my notes. I have no notes. Chris, I see you've taken some notes. Yeah, I've got some scribblings here, but I was thinking even before that, that uh, when you think fear, there's different types of fears that horror movies tap into, mm -hmm. and often the best ones 
simultaneously tackle different ones, whether it's uh, claustrophobia, agoraphobia, uh, fear of the outdoors, fear of the dark, fear of being underground, fear of terrorism, fear of uh, just walking home at night. There's just so many things that could potentially frighten different people and in that sense fear of things that we trust all of a sudden turning against us be yeah. it uh, uh, government organizations like a lot of the Romero oh, films yeah, those broad fears fear of our, our body turning against us in the Cronenberg films etc cetera, etc cetera, yeah and I was interested in preparing for this podcast uh, reading about how people study fear because the tingler is about a researcher whose mandate is to study fear and that's Dr. Dr. William, William Chapin I still yeah. remember his name because it's Vincent Price you know yeah and Chapin's a memorable name uh, Cats in the Cradle yeah, and the Silver stuff. Spoon uh, wasn't born with one of those unfortunately but yeah and uh, in the study of fear they I guess now, did you prefer the Chapin version or the Ugly Kid Joe cover? Oh god <laughs> I, I, was, I don't like either song actually but I can play I can play like it on the guitar. original like come on do not have a heart I mean anybody I know it's overplayed I know it's hackneyed I know it's up there with American Pie for like a song that no one ever needs to hear again but it's also rather heartbreaking I gotta say I do have a heart and I read this week that your heart beats three billion times over the course of a lifetime That's, that kind of scares me just hearing it that it is scary I, yeah uh, also that you will experience somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 to 3600 Saturdays in your lifetime which I think is more scary because you can picture that number running down in a way that you can't with a billion because a billion is more uh, you can't really picture what a billion is mm -hmm. so these are both the kind of things to be afraid of if, yeah. you, if you will yeah. um, I was also reading about fear and how they really learned a lot about it in mice where they have a genetic knockout mouse where they take the embryo remove the gene during development and see what transpires and I guess animals have this particular behavior called freezing where a, a predator comes up to them and they well as the name implies they freeze and they look around to kind of gauge their surroundings and they figured out that mice when when they were lacking this certain gene uh, it affected and mediated their fear response and then as research progressed they pinpointed a particular protein and the amygdala in the brain mm -hmm. so this is all very interesting stuff but at the time William Castle was filming the tingler they really it was like a black box and they had no clue what anything to do with fear was I wonder if because we have the venerable Vincent Price playing Dr. Uh, Dr. Chapin and he because he's he's six of one half dozen of another I don't know what is he a mortician or is he a scientist he's both I guess he works <laughs> that part wasn't very well explained <laughs> he works he's a prison a... coroner right so but but he but was I, also investigating fear. And for some reason, I didn't catch this the first go-round, mm -hmm. but by law, according to the movie, and I did not fact-check this, they had to do an autopsy on every executed death row inmate. I, remember, I thought that's kind of a waste. In our last recording, you said something along the lines of what? why would they even need to perform an autopsy on someone who was uh, zapping an electric chair? Yeah. We know. It wasn't yeah. death by... <laughs> 2,000 volts. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. pretty easy. Yeah, you don't have to be a doctor. To it wasn't that death out. by misadventure. Yeah. It was death by electricity. <laughs> but now you say that by Death law. by misadventure. That's that's hilarious. Mm. <laughs> You're saying by law. Yeah, no, eh? <laughs> I, I want that signed on my death certificate. That was the official death of... Uh, death, um, cause of death for Bon Scott. And um, uh, I can't even think anymore. Let's up on the drummer. 
Oh wow, okay. Uh, so it, w- it wouldn't Jean be Bonner. like Amelia, yeah. Amelia Earhart because her plane went down. Like she's a true adventurer, or not someone who's a drunk. Basically, if you choke on your own vomit, when you're dead, <laughs> you're, it's classified as death by misadventure. Oh now, my god. Mama Cassar is at uh, off repeated, maybe apocryphal, apocryphal, maybe urban legends. She choked death on a ham sandwich. Mm. Is that considered death by misadventure, or would that be considered death by pork products? <laughs> death by panini. Oh my lord! And, uh, <laughs> death by umbrella. Plug yeah. by plug yeah. book. Okay. No. Anyway, let's get back to this. So, you did some research, and yes, the study of the human res- physiological response to fear is something that is amazing fodder for a horror film. Now, I wonder if in the late 50s, scientists were actually studying fear like they do today. Uh, not at all. All they were doing was like the psychological effects of uh, operation, operant conditioning, all the B.F. Skinner type stuff where mm-hmm. they associate a stimulus and an unconditioned one to elicit a fear. Like, but Pavlovian, they didn't, like, it's yeah, almost the, more like stimulus and yeah, that sort of thing, response, what have you. it was very, very primitive and basic. And so at the time, they didn't really have that much knowledge to draw from. But it just strikes me as a weird conceit that the guy's side interest is death by fright, mm-hmm. and he's a, a coroner, and death is usually, well, 100% of the time, your heart stops. Or I would assume he would just uh, do, like, shootings and... and overdoses and that kind of thing so I don't understand where his I guess it's just he's, he's well, a polymyth he loves research well there's that he's and a mad was also, scientist it was sort maybe. of a, um, a bit of a, a device to have us um, sort of be introduced to another ma- uh, main character because he's performing the autopsy on the uh, deceased uh, who the, the brother-in-law starts talking to to Dr. Chapin and he, be, he becomes a figure later on but before we let's us like okay fear everything but Let's just go back a bit and just talk a little bit about William Castle and what a treasure this man was. There are certain filmmakers within the genre sphere that you can you can sort of call them and without any word of pejorative uh, connotation, a huckster. Roger Corman would be one. Maybe David F. Friedman, Herschel Graham Lewis, Lloyd Kaufman, uh, Lloyd Kaufman yeah. indeed, and William Castle because these were men. Um, well, they all were men, yeah, who worked within the genre and they wanted to do two things. They wanted to put butts in the seat, they wanted to make money, and they wanted to make a quality product. That's, that's the thing, too, is that, well, some may have men argue, you know, I mean, Trauma, you either love it or hate it, right? But some may argue, you know, at least with Corman or with Castle, yes, they weren't working with major studio budgets, major studio sets, actors, what have you. But they always did the best they could with what they had, and they put out fun product that sometimes was a lot better than it had any right to be. And I'm talking a lot about the Corman Poe adaptations, a lot of those, of course, starring Vincent Price. Now, in the case of Castle, he's most famous, I would say, for his use of gimmicks. And this is something that I almost wish people... It, in a sense, it's funny, because I guess there's this new thing they're doing now where it's called 4D Cinema. Have you heard of this? Uh, no. Okay, so we have 3D, right? And then there's the D-Box. Have you ever sat in a D-Box? You've never... Okay, so now... Because what they're trying to do is, like, how do we get people back in the multiplex? How do we get people back in the multiplex? I mean, everybody's streaming. Everybody's downloading. Nobody wants to pay these exorbitant prices. So they keep trying new things. 3D was one thing. Then they added D-Box, where you can purchase a special chair. It's only two rows in your Ultra AVX Cinema that vibrates and moves uh-huh. along with what's happening on screen. And it's kind of fun. I saw uh, Mad Max Fury Road sitting in a D-Box. 
I saw uh, Man of Steel sitting at D-Box, which actually made the movie quite fun. <laughs> um, there was maybe one or two movies I saw in D-Box. I mean, they're always going to be an action movie. We would never have, like, you know... Um, Moonlight in a deep box. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, when, <laughs> Mama Mia. <laughs> or, or even Lola Land. Eh? Yeah, Let's no. move around <laughs> to the dance. But, but anyhow, so it's funny because oftentimes we look at developing countries and we say, okay, well, they're a third world country, but in many ways they're so much more progressive than we are. For example, Bangkok, Thailand. I mean, their Skytrain makes our fucking TTC look like a joke, mm-hmm. right? And when I was telling one of our mutual friends who lives in Thailand about the D box, he's like, oh, it's like 4D. But the difference is that 4D, they do more. They immerse you in the movie. So, for example, if there's water, uh, if it's raining, they'll spray water at you. They'll pump in um, things Sense? for the olfactory wow, senses, yeah. just like what John well, Waters did. Unscrupulous advertisers do that as well. Like in well, yeah, but also that. Waters did with polyester because mm-hmm. he was homaging William Castle and so on. So they want to make you as immersed as possible in the movie. And what Castle was doing was just that. He had gimmicks called for example on another castle um price collaboration house on haunted hill it was called the murder where the, the skeleton is on screen and boom they throw the skeleton out <laughs> in the audience things like that yeah and he was famous for that there was a wonderful movie that paid homage to it called matinee it came out i believe in the early 90s directed by joe dante starred um the great john goodman as uh as a castle-esque producer who famous for these gimmicks and so on and it was a lot of fun so this movie because it's about fear, the whole gimmick is they wanted, it's called, it was called, not Percepto, yes, Percepto. Mm-hmm. And it was all about making the audience scream. Because one of the conceits of this movie, and this is through Chapin's research, is that when you are afraid, you develop, you know, you get that, that chill in, in your spine, and he hypothesizes that that's an actual entity called the Tingler. And the only way that you can alleviate the tingler from killing you, because you know, from fear, is by screaming. So Castle devised an extremely ingenious way of making the audience scream. First of all, when the movie begins, he comes out. I love when that happens, when the director comes out, breaks the fourth <laughs> wall, tells you about the movie you're about to see. It was done by Hitchcock with Psycho, I believe. It was done even by... Um, Carl Lemley, the head of MGM, when he introduced Frankenstein. Oh, wow. Um, well, it goes back into theater with Bertolt Brecht, where you, you step out and you address the audience yeah. and you step out of your character. Uh, the Verfremdungs effect is what it's called. And you have Castle saying, Some of you may feel the tingler, just like on screen. And what this man did, which was amazing, is they put little joy buzzers in random seats. And at certain key moments, they would go off and somebody would scream. And of course, when one person screams, another person screams and so on and so forth. He, he was not um, above planting shills in the audience to scream. They had to sign waivers. The audience had to sign waivers coming in. Nice. Oh, it, well, yeah, yeah, I was also saying like the insurance if, policies yeah, with Lloyds of Friday, London. Yeah. I mean, no one, uh, no director exploited fear greater than him, arguably. I mean, all, all these, and they succeeded to varying degrees. Uh, I heard testimonials about the Emerjo that uh, kids would sometimes throw things at the ghost when it was like stuck uh, on the scaffolding well, and like uh, hanging sort of precariously over the audience. It's interesting too because, and I recall in our original discussion, you mentioned about how this would have been so cool because back then we didn't have the internet. We didn't mm-hmm. have 
spoilers like we do now. So one kid would see a matinee of the House of Honda Hill, enjoy a merjo, and he wouldn't be going on, you know, social media saying, oh my God, you know, the, a skill is going to fly over you. But what was happening is people were, kids that were seeing the Seraphim matinee of House of Honda Hill would tell their friend. And knowing this, the, the kids came armed ready with stuff to throw at the poor skeleton <laughs> as it emerged over the audience so yeah once in a while the gimmicks may have backfired yes sometimes i mean heck it's it's a underpaid usher who's just taking the skeleton and throwing <laughs> over the audience right it's not the guy who operates the chandelier and the fan of the opera hey, right? yeah, so true but it it speaks to the uh, impact of this kind of campaign because i wanted to see william castle movies based solely on these kinds of ridiculous gimmicks so this has but the only way you can experience those gimmicks is if you see them in the theater that's i guess but i still wanted to investigate it yeah a movie that whose producers and directors had the gall to put something like this together so i've known about the tingler since i was probably 12 mm -hmm. and wanted to see it even though i couldn't obviously reproduce that effect but i know his name and there are more prominent directors that came out at the time but for some reason castle has held up and he's I mean, he's all, what, I have not seen 13 Ghosts, but I know of it because it made the most infamous use of Emergo slash Emergo technology, and I, I would love to see it now, and I'm going to go through some of his oeuvre, you know, <laughs> to, you know, get out the uh, umlaut sound. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go through some of it because i got to say I really enjoyed The Tingler, uh, seeing it, I guess, twice in, in a week. Well, look, you have what is in effect boils down to your creature feature right because i guess mall spoiler alert uh chapin does manage at one point to isolate the tingler remove it which leads to uh what a crazy scene the tingler is in the theater <laughs> and the screen goes black okay everybody scream scream, scream. and this yeah. is vincent price speaking right to the audience but i mean the tingler how would you describe the tingler uh, it looks like is one it? of those fiberglass lobsters you see in a, in a crappy seafood restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, like a giant crustacean. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's a creature feature directed by William Castle starring Vincent Price. You would have thought that I would have been all over this movie from day one because I've never made it. I've never been shy about extolling the virtues of Vincent Price in this podcast. But the man made well over 100 films. Right? Yeah, 201 IMDb credits. Not all of those were feature films. A lot of those might have been um, appearances on game shows, appearances on television talk shows, what have you. He did. He worked. I mean, the man was a working actor to, from the uh, from the day he started till the day he his health wouldn't allow him to do it anymore. But this one I had never seen. Perhaps because I I don't know. Maybe because they never re-released it in any of the Vincent Price uh, retrospective box sets. It was in the public domain for a long time, as was House of Haunted Hill, which Shadow Factory did rescue from public domain. I guess they purchased the rights to it, put it on the Vincent Price box of Volume 2. They did that with another PD, VP film, uh, Last Man Earth. But this one still remains in the, in the public domain. And so I guess I always thought, well, it's so easily accessible. It's in the public domain. I'll get around to it eventually. Um, because there's still Vincent Price films I haven't seen. Like, for example... His uh, what the Doctor Goldfoot series? He did some sort of um, kind of anyhow. This was my first viewing, and it was it was a delight. I mean, there's not much I can say other than you have Castle's imprinter all over it, with the sense of this is a movie designed a to put those butts in the seats, but once they're in the seats, we got to give them something worth their nickel or whatever mm -hmm. they paid for. B, you have the greatest horror actor ever. 
and see it's a creature feature how in a glorious black and white how can you go wrong indeed yes and as a dispassionate man of science and his lab coat he finds it difficult to study fear but wants to put himself uh, to f experience it subjectively but as he said one of there's so many great speeches in the movie but he says something to the effect of like I'm not a child anymore I can't really experience fear which is a little bit sad but true to quote Metallica but yeah it, it's uh, you you lose your sense of Im imagination in some respects and some people are only respond to visceral like naturalistic fears but you know he, what's ironic actually sorry to interrupt you but yeah. when you're a child it's true like when you said that's a little sad you know because um Fear is much a part of growing up is wonderment, you know, mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned. Um, a child needs to be afraid every now and again because of the imagination. But when you're a kid, your fears are based around things that are completely, pretty much baseless, imaginary. The boogeyman, the monster in the closet, what have you. When you're an adult, you don't lose that fear. It just, it, it, it's, you're now afraid of things that are real. I e. Yeah, more existential fears. Well, there's that, <laughs> growing older, et cetera, right. health failing, uh, fears of you know not being able to meet your financial obligations, fears of not being able to be a, a good husband, father, what have you, not being able to be a good podcaster. You know, <laughs> The reality is that we create one set of fears, which are actually quite wonderful because they, they feed our imagination for another set of fears that are more rooted in reality, but in many ways... Just as imaginatory, if I'm, if I'm quoting that word itself, as those early fears of the boogeyman, the monster, and the bed. Because what we do is we just take scenarios and we just blow them up mentally. Mm -hmm. And that becomes our fear. That becomes our anxiety. I don't know if that creates the actual tingler because in the movie they're, they're, they're talking about actual visceral fright. Like somebody, you know, like there's a line in front of you, you know, fight and flight. Well, you're fighting and that's it. That's what creates a tingler. But all these everyday fears, all these everyday um, anxieties that we walk around with. I don't think is there ever been a day in your life that you haven't had some worry about something? Uh, no, and I think they're also disproportionately weighted to things that I should not be fearful of. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. That's a depressing and scary thought, yeah, <laughs> so it's, to speak. It's, it's just <laughs> when you brought up kids, and I'm thinking that you know, yeah, kids have fears. But those are good, healthy fears, and because it's part and parcel of their imagination, and then ultimately they realize that they can, you know, what reality is and what fantasy is, and then frankly, I think reality is a lot more scary than fantasy. Well, even if you know your risk profile for whatever it happens to be, you still can't tell yourself that everything's going to be okay because. Uh, fear trumps rationality all the time, right? Both of us like. We are, we're podcasting from a city called Toronto the Good, that's what it used to be called, uh, probably before all this uh, spate of crime happened and we had mass shootings and whatnot. I just keep saying relatively speaking. Relatively speaking, Everybody we're like, very, very safe, but both yeah. of us were outliers because we've been mugged. Mm -hmm. and In our own cities. And the funny thing is we both travel to countries that they say, oh, be careful when you're yeah. there. And both of us had nary an incident but in her own city it's <laughs> funny you yeah. at knife point and me like I was uh, smacked by some I almost want to quote like foreign object like from the WWE he had a foreign object in his trunks but I was hit with something maybe oh. it's a fist I don't know in the back of the head but both of us yeah and that's something that has 
uh, will not leave us. And even though we know that you're more likely to get hit by a car on the walk home, I'm speaking for myself actually mm -hmm. as I'm walking home, uh, and this is your downtown Toronto headquarters, but still, that's that I think of that a lot, and it. Uh, preconditions me to acting in certain ways, especially in the dark when there's groups of men coming towards me and I've had a few too many. So would you say that you have a, a particular phobia that you can pinpoint? Uh, well, we're both hypochondriacs. Well, yeah. So that's a broad one. And uh -huh. I always, if I feel the slightest twitch or see the some sort of skin discoloration or feel any pain, regardless of where it is in my body, I'm running to... Uh, WebMD and, and, and doing some ridiculous self-diagnosis. So mm -hmm. that, that's something that's for, for sure. I'm afraid of uh, ladders. Climbing them or Cl walking under them? Uh, climbing them. Uh -huh. I, I don't know what it is, but I can, as soon as I go past the third step, I start getting, I, I get the tingler. I literally get that <laughs> feeling up my spine and I start to break out in a cold sweat and it's, it's pretty bad. Like, I don't know what it is. I've never fallen off a ladder. I've never had an incident on a ladder. But I just don't feel safe. Interesting that you mentioned that. I've never mentioned this on the podcast, but I was almost like I was almost seriously injured falling off a ladder, which is odd because I'm not afraid of them. So I guess I'm contradicting the point I made earlier. But I was working in a restaurant and there was a walk-in refrigerator, and all our cutlery was kept on top. And I put up a ladder to go get some because we were running low at a big, big uh, like 200 seat. Uh, bar and restaurant I was working at I went to fetch these uh, items and I slipped and I narrowly missed a steel shelf that was being used to store you know uh, pots and pans and whatnot and there was uh, uh, like a L-shaped bracket that was sticking out I missed it by about two or three inches and that like falling on steel from a meter high I would have impaled myself mm -hmm. So, yeah, luckily I kicked a tray of chicken wings and it went all over the place. <laughs> and so that was the worst of it. It was more embarrassment than anything else. But I was like, yeah, that's uh, an incident that I hadn't thought about, probably because I just so narrowly escaped serious injury that it hasn't affected me to the extent as when I've actually been injured. But that was a harrowing moment. Mm -hmm. it's Can you think of anything else other than elevators? Other than ladders? Well, I was. It's funny you say that because uh, two weeks ago I was stuck in an elevator. Mm. That happened to me. I was stuck in there for an hour. But I, I'm not afraid of elevators. I, I'm not afraid of much, to be honest with you. Um, I don't have many phobias. As a as a kid, I was fraught with phobias. I was afraid of everything. I was practically afraid of a glass. You know. I, s I still can't sleep with the closet door open. Yeah. So that's something that's a holdover no, that, from when I was 11. I don't like open doors. I I don't know. I just. It bothers me. There's something. I guess there's something. Interesting. Um, yeah, there's a, something lurking. It's almost mm -hmm. like a Stephen King type fear. Yeah, I I, I, I have Cujo or something. Zero phobias, but I have lots of anxiety, and this is just part and parcel of what I was saying earlier about you know the fear of a kid versus the kid uh, the fear of an adult. Mm -hmm. And that's just splitting hairs. It's just all a bunch of it's a under the broad rubric of fear. I'm afraid of being afraid. Uh, What's what's so great about this film? Getting back to Dr. Chapin, is yeah, he does isolate this creature. When it breaks loose, it's hilarious. Uh, there's interesting dynamics going on both between him and his friend, who runs a silent movie house, as well as uh, Dr. Chapin and his wife. And he actually uses his wife 
for nefarious purposes, which I think led viewers initially to think that he would be the villain of this film when mm. he really wasn't. He's not a great guy, but he he shoots he's a, a blank pistol he's a at cat. His, he's a bit he, of a cat. He is, yeah. As is typical with many Vincent Price roles, he's not an out-and-out villain. It's rare that he, he is. There's only a few movies I can pinpoint where he you could say he's an out-and-out villain. Masquerade Death being one. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, oh, the Fives movies? But even no, that, no, no. Well, Fives, but he was still sympathetic. Um, the Witchfinder General. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... He, he, you know, he was sympathetic because the doctor took his wife away in the Fies movies. So that is another hallmark of Vincent Price. He's always a bit sympathetic as a villain. However, when you brandish a pistol and you force your wife to do something at gunpoint, that's <laughs> yeah, not exactly evil, the yeah. hallmark of a... Yeah, of adhering a, to the Hippocratic Oath, for sure. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and then when she falls into unconsciousness because of fright, he immediately takes her right over to his lab and, and does this ridiculous sort of pseudo MRI on her, mm-hmm. which is funny because she's lying sideways. That's really not the way anyone would properly uh, investigate a, a spinal cord. But anyway, he puts her on her side, uh, zaps her with this de- uh, device. I guess it's a, yeah, whatever, an x-ray. And then he brings in his lab assistant and says, look here. And then they dis- they discover this entity that's affixed to the spine. And it's pretty glorious. What's this? You tell me. I don't know, but whatever it is, it's stronger and denser than bone. I'm showing you this series of negatives in reverse order, on purpose. Wow, look at that. Wait. until we get a specimen of it we can't be sure and there's a subplot involving his friend's missus who is deaf mute who runs a silent film house which is kind of a neat uh, little uh, cutesy conceit that i thought was very well, very sure, charming because the the thing with the tingler is that the the how it does not overtake you kill you with fear is by screaming a woman who's deaf-mute is unable to scream. Mm-hmm. So that sort of set off some nefarious ideas in Vincent Price's head. Yeah. Like, oh, uh, let's not forget another subplot that was uh, quite indelible. The, or no, should we say, not use the definite article, but the indefinite article, an acid. Uh-huh. Yes, well, apparently, and this we do remember from our research, because that's what uh, this film is probably second most famous for, is the first celluloid depiction of LSD. Mm-hmm. And this proceeds Even like the Dennis Hopper movie, The whatever, Trip. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And Vincent Price... This, uh, this, this proceeds uh, Jackie Gleason tripping out in auto prematures. <laughs> you got to see it to believe it's Skidoo, but yeah. Uh, well, it's just the, the whole... Th- Impetus it was predicated on again Vincent Price's character not being able to experience fear and why do people take drugs a lot of the time? Well, in the case of alcohol, is to become fearless at least vis-a-vis the opposite sex. Presumably, he felt that this drug would incapacitate his fear, I guess, so that he could experience it. And uh, there's a wonderful scene uh, where he the walls are climbing. the walls the walls the walls exactly I mean that's that was that's the most memorable line but mm-hmm. I, 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 at the time I mean they were doing the the MK Ultra experiments weren't they yeah where they were LSD was something that was not 
uh, schedule one narcotic, whatever the heck you want to schedule it at. I don't know. I scheduled for three thirty, whatever. <laughs> it was something that the government was actually thinking it has some practical purposes, be it on the battlefield, be it for scientific exploration, what have you. And they were inadvertently feeding soldiers LSD to some extremely detrimental effects. I just saw an incredible documentary on Netflix. It was by Errol Morris. I forget the title of it, but it had to do with one person's suicide and the investigation thereof and the unraveling of, of it and the fact that he was subjected against his wealthy MK Ultra experiments and so on. So the acid, or unacid at this point, was not in the 60s free love, LSD, tune in, turn on, drop out, what have you. This this was something they, were th- like they knew was going to take it beyond. Open up the doors of perception, as you were mm. saying earlier, right? Aldous Huxley, right? Well, I've always been leery of it <laughs> oh. no but yeah I've never done it myself but a mutual friend of ours in high school had a really awful trip and saw the ceiling fan turn into uh, like dragons and and he was he was mortified by it and took too much and did never did it again so like I, I had my fill with hallucinogens with mushrooms and I, I don't want to I'd rather keep that door of perception uh, permanently closed like mm-hmm. my closet uh, should we, at this point, transition into what we learned? Sure. Well, I mean, I'm just going to start off by saying that Vincent Price is always a treasure. He really is an actor that he is so consummately entertaining in everything he does that no matter what the material is, whether it's beneath him, whether it's something a little hokey, a little silly... Vincent always took it seriously because he knew that his fans wanted to see him and they wanted to see him just sink his teeth and relish these wonderful roles. Yeah. It's kind of a shame that no um, director ever took it upon themselves to sort of uh, do what Tarantino did to John Travolta and give Vincent Price a role that was more befitting his, his training, his classical training, his stature as an actor. He did appear in a prestige film uh, at the tail end of the 80s, I believe, or the early part of the 90s, called The Wills of August, with some contemporaries of his that he, um, uh, he worshipped, like Jessica Tandy or whatever, which I, I think got some critical acclaim, but uh, maybe some Oscar nominations, I don't know. But part of me wonders if, let's say, Francis Ford Coppola would have said, you know what, Don Corleone, Vincent Price. Uh-huh. Or um, Marlon Brando, another Marlon Brando role he could have played, Superman's dad, you know? in Superman the movie. I mean, I don't know. Which is not to say that uh, Vincent Price didn't experience a bit of a career resurgence in the 80s and 90s. I mean, he had, uh, of course, the thriller rap and one of the biggest selling albums of all time, the hilarious House of Frankenstein, which made it massive here in Canada and a bit abroad. But it would have been nice to see Vincent get the accolades he, he deserved from his own community, you know? To see him on that stage, accepting a cameo. He never even got a Lifetime Achievement Award, for God's sakes. If any man deserves a Lifetime Achievement Award, it's Vincent Price. It's true, and I think about his legacy, because, like, he, he was... It sounds like it's pejorative to say he was above the material, but in a way that was still accessible, because he had this winking... Uh, critical distance like he was a very smart man he was a Yale grad if I'm not mistaken Uh, he did a masters in in the UK like he was very very accomplished the man was a gourmand the man was an art aficionado the man was a curator of uh, fine art for Sears for a while there they were actually selling original art and Vincent Price was the one who was responsible for going out there and finding it I mean the man was 
he did so much for our communities in impoverished areas. There's a lot of things he did that no one knows about. But yeah. if you if you want to know more about what some of the amazing stuff that Vincent did, read and also I mean look, it's a warts and all book, but Victoria Price, his daughter's biography about her father, I, I a phenomenal read. Mm-hmm. It is warts and all, although with Vincent Price, even his warts are <laughs> Very adorable and forgivable. So, but it's a phenomenal reading. You'll come away with, if you already respect Vincent Price. You're going to come away with even more admiration for the man. And if you don't think much of him, other than the fact that he's just a horror actor, read the book. I believe it's called A Daughter's Biography. It is phenomenal. Well, I'm thinking also with respect to his legacy, when you compare him to someone like, let's say, Christian Bale, this is a guy who seems kind of humorless, or like Robert Downey. These guys don't have this winking. He, he did his rap on Joan, the Joan Rivers show. I just rewatched that. Mm-hmm. Like, he just had, like, he was just so great. And There's he a- understood that he was, he maybe took, mater- worked with material that maybe wasn't up to snuff. But he always, improve whatever he was in and that's the testament of a true actor in many ways well you can always cherry pick really good projects that make yourself look good it's another thing altogether to be in something that's crap and elevate it mm-hmm. and and that's i think you know an important part of his legacy for sure well this is what people, you know, people say this all the time but in vincent's uh, vincent's case it's 100 true he was a gentleman in every sense of the word mm-hmm. and he was a scholar he was a learned man who would, who would never stop learning. So, star rank for the Tingler. Ah, yes. Well, uh, upon revisiting it and in, in so quickly into succession as well, I just I thought it was really delightful and charming, and with some nice gallows humor at the at the outset as well. So, I'm gonna give it a solid three and a quarter. Mm-hmm. Uh, yourself. Normally, if you tell me it's a Vincent Price movie directed by William Castle uh, and it's a creature feature, I'm gonna, it's like an automatic four stars in my book. What I will say is, I mean, as fun as it was, those scenes when the Tingler was loose in the cinema and the screen would go blank and Vincent would be addressing the audience directly and telling everyone to scream and scream, it, 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 so, it kind of took me away from, uh, it took me out of the movie this is I was thinking, like, how much better would this be in the cinema? Yeah. It is a movie that can survive without the gimmick, but it does lose just a little bit. So I'm going to give it, you know what? You gave it three and a quarter? Mm-hmm. I'll give it the exact same thing. Sounds good. And check out our four-star or five-star podcast. Uh, I always depends. wonder, which, which one should it be? Because like, I always oh. see like corner stores and bodegas are like the three-star variety, which is one near me. I'm like, three-star? Like... Surely it should be a four-star corner store, right? Like, but okay, let's say a five-star podcast if we can be so bold. Uh, new episodes every Friday for your listening pleasure, and we will talk to you soon. Take care. Thank you.